Our scripture today is 1 John 2, 28 through 3, 11. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we see we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has even either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning since the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who, the children of God, who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Let's pray. Father, as we approach your word, may you prepare our hearts to quiet our thoughts, to hear a new truth that we may know but need to hear again, to grow in likeness of your son, to above all things abide in him. Pray this in his holy name. Amen. Uh, when Mark was in medical school, she learned an interesting fact. This fact is that men who are married live longer than men who are not married. And every wife in the room is saying, yeah, obviously, because men are stupid, and they do stupid things, and wives keep them from doing more stupid things. But there is actually data to back up that statement. And the reason why oftentimes, again, this is across the population size, married men live longer is because their wives make them go to the doctor. It is a truth we know as men, we will not go to the doctor until we are struggling to breathe, our lips are turning blue, and then we'll think, yeah, she'll probably go. I'll see if there's an opening next week. But wives will oftentimes make their husbands go for regular checkups. See, the thing is, is when you go to a doctor for a checkup, he's not just checking to make sure your heart is beating. He's checking to see if it is in a healthy range of beating. He's looking for a certain measurement. When he checks your blood pressure, he's not just making sure that you have blood pressure, but he's seeing that's in a healthy range. There's a big gap between death, no heartbeat, and perfect health, and all of us live somewhere in the in-between of more or less healthy, and going to checkups helps us see where we are and helps prevent dying before we need to die. <laughs> we're in 1 John. We're in the study of 1 John. If you remember, there's three tests that John gives. He's 
uh, writing this letter to a church that's had a church split. A group has left who had abandoned the gospel, and so John is giving them three tests for what real Christianity looks like to affirm them that they are the real church. These three tests are first, there's a moral test, which is obedience to Christ's commands. There's a social test, which is loving brothers and sisters in Christ. And lastly, there's a doctrinal test, confessing that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Now here's the thing, is when John is giving these, it's not like he's just, these are not meant to be taken as yes or no answers. Like, am I obedient to Christ? Yes. It's not like he's just checking to make sure there is a spiritual heartbeat. He's giving encouragement to have a spiritual checkup. How are they doing in their obedience to Christ? How are they doing in their love for one another? How are they doing in their doctrinal confession of Jesus Christ as the Christ who has come in the, in the flesh? So we're coming back to the first test. Remember, John goes through these tests three different times. He just thinks they're so good. He's going to come back again and again and again. And we're coming back to this first test, this moral test, obedience to Christ. Up until this point, it's been described in various ways. John talks about it as walking in the light, as God is in the light. Talks about it as keeping the, uh, Christ's commandments, as walking as Christ has walked. These are all ways of describing what this obedience is supposed to look like. And our text today gives us three other commands that kind of flesh out what this obedience Look like, And if you remember, I said before, John doesn't use commands. He uses a lot of descriptive language, but when he uses a command, an imperative, you shall do this, we should pay attention. So there's only 10 in the entire book of First John. And so there's actually three he gives us. They kind of help structure the text for us this morning, and they're going to be our main points. So the first command, the first point, is going to be abide in Christ. The second command, which is the second point, is see the love of God, our Father. And then the third command, which is the third point, is don't be deceived. So follow along as we get into our first point, abide in Christ, follow along as I read again verses 28 to 29 of chapter two. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So we see this first command in the first couple words of the text, little children, abide in him. It's, it's reminiscent of what came before in chapter 2 and verse 24 when he says, let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. And there John is saying, the gospel that you heard from the beginning, which John preached from the very beginning, which he received from Jesus himself, abide in that. Let that teaching, that doctrine take up residence in your heart. But here he adds another really important emphasis to this truth of abiding, which is not just simply retaining doctrinal truth, which is important. He says, no, abide in Jesus himself. Again, doctrine is necessary. A gospel doctrine is necessary for salvation, but it's not sufficient. Christianity is more than just believing certain things. It's being in relationship with a person. So I use this very relational language, abide in him. And that's why when you look through the history of the church, whenever there's great church renewals, whether it's the first or second great awakening, whether you look at other times, all of a sudden you start having Christians talk about Jesus as someone they know. It's a mark of spiritual health. That's why John says, abide in him. But we have to ask, okay, well, what does it mean to abide in Christ? We don't have the 
benefit of having been discipled by John. Again, John is probably writing to the church of Ephesus, a church they spent years at. They know what he means by this. We don't necessarily know right off the bat what it means when John says abide in Christ. But we do have other writings of John, and we see that Jesus used this exact language in John 15, the passage that I read earlier. And it gives us an idea of what it means to abide. In John 15, Jesus uses this illustration of a a vine and a branch. He says, abide in me. And what does that look like? It looks like the way that a branch abides on a vine. That's a very close and intimate connection. Like, where does the vine end and the branch begins? Well, I guess when it breaks off, but it's not like it, you know, internally it's going to look all the same. It's the same color. It's a very close and intimate connection. The branch finds all of its life, all of its strength in the branch. Abide in Jesus in the same way. Find all of your life, find all of your vitality, all of your joy in Jesus himself. Abide in him. And beware of finding these things in created things. Because there's a tendency in all of us to do that, to find it in our jobs, in our studies, in our families. I mean, to find the, you know, the greatest satisfaction. There's just something in our hearts that wants to find it in anything but the vine himself, Jesus Christ. Beware of that. For Jesus really is the only true source of life. So one meaning of abiding in Christ is finding all of our strength, our joy, our life in Jesus himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, who is alive and active and at the right hand of the Father today. But the second meaning comes a little bit later in John 15. And uh, Jesus says it like this in John 15, 9 to 10. It says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. When Jesus says abide in my love, he means abide in him. Jesus and his love are not separate entities. And so he's saying is if you want to abide in Christ, he says keep my commandments. And even later in John 15, 14, he says, you are my friends. You are relationally close to me. You are in fellowship with me if you do what I command. What abiding is teaching us is that fellowship with Jesus, close communion with Jesus and obedience are two sides of the same coin. They're, they're related. That means is that as we step out in obedience to Christ, as we do what he says, we grow in fellowship with him. We grow in felt experience of his presence in our lives. And by the way, as a side point, this is how we obey and avoid legalism. Anytime we talk about obedience, our hearts want to latch on to something that we can find security in other than the grace that's brought to us in Jesus Christ. We don't find God's favor in obedience. Why do we obey? It's not to earn God's favor or to build some kind of platform we can stand on before God, but it's because we want more of Jesus. We want to walk more closely with him. We want a deeper fellowship with him. How do we do that? We do what he says. Brothers and sisters, do you, do you want to walk more closely with Jesus? Do you want a communion with him, a fellowship with him that is intimate and close? Well, Philippians 2.3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That doesn't sound like a full life to me. Deferring to other people, considering myself less, 
about the promise of Christ. If you do what he says, if you obey his commands, you'll walk with him. Defer to one another. First Thessalonians 4.3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. We don't put to death pornography, or we don't not sleep with our boyfriend or girlfriend, or we don't not commit adultery just because there's some arbitrary rule because God is a killjoy. We do these things because we want to be with Christ. If we want fellowship with him, we'll do what he says. Lastly, this is an interesting one, James 5.16. And again, Jesus is the word. So any command we find in scripture is coming from the mouth of Jesus himself. James 5.16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. When was the last time you confessed a sin to someone else? We've got to be careful. The Bible does say don't cast your pearls before swine, and there are some people who are not trustworthy. But the church should be a place where we're confessing our sins to one That's part of what we do in our small groups, in our men's discipleship, women's discipleship. We pray for one another. When we do that, we walk closely with Jesus. Abide in Christ. But John gives us a reason why we should abide in Christ beyond these intrinsic benefits, beyond the fact that we want to be in fellowship with the Lord of life. And the reason we abide in Christ is because he's coming back. Again, look at verse 28. Little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. It says at his coming, literally it's at his presence. Kind of an awkward phrase, so they changed it at his coming, but it's like the idea is we're one day going to stand in the presence of Jesus. Because of that, abide in him. Now, there's two truths we have to hold in tension as we look at this statement so that we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. There's two truths we have to hold in tension, and if we lose one side or the other, we're going to be distorted. But the first truth you have to hold in in tension is that when Christ comes back, we might shrink from him in shame. Interestingly, John is not writing to a mixed congregation. These are those who have remained, and John is very convinced they're Christians. Now, God knows the heart. None of us know uh, exactly who is a Christian, who is not when we're looking at a church. But John's pretty, he's writing to Christians. He's assuming they're Christians. And yet he still says, abide in him so that when he appears, you may not shrink from him in shame. And so we have to conclude from this that it is a live possibility that a Christian at the appearing of their Lord might shrink back. What John is saying is that one day we will stand before the the one who loved us completely, who redeemed us fully, who bought us totally, who has since shepherded us faithfully, who has forgiven us readily, and who has walked with us to the end. And the question is, will we be ashamed for how we have lived in response? I read a biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great British pastor, a number of years ago. And he began his ministry in Wales in kind of a you know, rough-and-tumble mining community. And God worked an amazing, amazing work Thousands, or not, sorry, hundreds of people profess faith. It was really a revival in that town. And one of the first people uh, who confessed faith, who were kind of the beginning of this revival, was the town drunk. He was a man in his 60s by then. He had multiple kids by multiple women, spent his days getting money to buy alcohol to get drunk. That was his life. And I don't remember the story of how he became a Christian, but he became a Christian. He professed faith. His eyes were opened, and he began to weep tears 
And there were two emotions that dominated his, his initial experience of conversion. One was joy, that even he could be forgiven and find new life. And the other was bitter regret, because he just kept saying, I've wasted so much of my life. He had experienced such grace and forgiveness, and he's looking and thinking, I've given so little in return, and there was bitterness over it. It's possible that we may shrink from Christ as his coming. As we see the one who's loved us, who's cared for us, and we've done so little in return. That's the first truth. But there's a second truth that we have to hold in tension or we're gonna be distorted. And the second truth is that Christ will never shrink from us. This is so important. If you've seen the old cartoon Fantasia, not the new one, the new one's like weird, but the old one from like the 50s, and it has that scene where Mickey Mouse is like an apprentice to a wizard, and he's told to do some kind of chore, and instead, and the wizard goes and takes a nap, and he takes the wizard's hat and does this magic and gets out of control, and the wizard has to come back and fix everything. And the wizard is like this very stern man, and he comes up to Mickey, and you know, Mickey hands the hat back, and he swipes the hat from Mickey, and then gives him a kick in the rear, and and Mickey's very ashamed. That's not what it's gonna be like when we see Christ. We may shrink from him, but he will never shrink from us. When we come to him, it won't be, he won't be disappointed in us, he won't be stern with us, he won't be like angry with us. He'll still be the good shepherd of our souls, the one that we've known our whole life. God will still be the father welcoming home the prodigal. That story, the father doesn't shake his finger. He'll still be the master commending his servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. And the reason is this. When Christ died on the cross, his blood covered all of our sins, even the sins we commit after we profess faith, even our sins of apathy, our sins of unfaithfulness, our sins of egotism. It covered it all. There's nothing left over for us to atone for. And so we may shrink from Christ because we realize, in view of what we've given, oh, we could have given more, but he will never shrink from us. He will still be gentle and lowly, a rest for us. Here's the thing. Faith is not believing. Is it, it, uh, faith of Christ's second coming is not believing that he's going to come and be angry at us and disappointed with us. Faith is realizing that when we stand before Christ, on that day, in his presence, we will realize that there is no sacrifice we could have made or did make. There's nothing we'd give in that he is not worthy of. We'll see that in a way that we've never seen it. We'll realize I could have given more. I, there's nothing I could have given that would have been more than what Christ is worthy of. Abide in Christ because he's coming back. And any regrets that we might have on that day will be that we couldn't have given more. So spiritual checkup time. Again, when John says abide in Christ, it's not a, yep, I'm doing it, or nope, I'm not doing it. Uh, how are we doing at abiding in Christ? Are you finding your life enjoying strength in the person of Jesus? Not in the concept or the doctrinal construct, but in the living person who speaks to us, who listens to us. Does this word find a home in your heart? Now, are you walking in obedience, you know, as much as you can? Growing in obedience. And lastly, does his imminent return give you perspective on life? And Christ is coming back. Helps us know what to take seriously, what not to take too seriously, what to dwell on, what not to dwell on. 
what is truly important in light of eternity. Well, that's the first uh, command, the first test of obedience, abide in Christ. The second point and the second command, test of obedience, is see the love of God, our Father. This is chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Follow along. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. <clears throat> Again, the command there is see. It's an imperative. It's a command. See what kind of love. The way it's written in the ESV is a little bit confusing. It's like, okay, well, what kind of love is it? <laughs> but what he's saying is he's like, what kind of love is this that he would love us in such a way? What category of love can we place this in? This is beyond what we can understand, beyond what we have categories for. This love that we have from the Father, and so see it, dwell on it, chew on it, meditate on it, for God has adopted us as his children. You are children of God. See the love of the Father. We're children of him now. It says, verse two, beloved, we are God's children now. The amazing reality which maybe we glance over a little bit too quickly sometimes, that when someone turns to Christ in repentance and puts their faith in him, they become God's child immediately. Like that is their new identity. There's not a trial period. There isn't a home study that needs to be done. God doesn't need to check to see if he can care for another child. It's instantaneously. The God of the universe is your father. not just a future reality, it's a present reality. You are children of God now. Belonging is one of the fundamental human needs. When psychologists talk about what humans need, we need food, shelter. One of the things we need is belonging. It's baked into our, into our DNA. That's why we have families. That's why a child who grows up in an orphanage, who's neglected, is unable to develop normally. Like, we need to belong. That's why when parents abandon their kids, it's so devastating for the kids. Who do they belong to? That's why loneliness. You think of like, when we're lonely, we're like, come on, pull on your big boy pants. How bad can it be? But loneliness can be more painful than physical pain. Because we were made to belong. We all want to know, where do I belong? Who are my people? Who am I with? The love of God tells us that by faith in Jesus, we are God's children now. And here's the truth. The best of human relationships that we long for, family, friends, spouses, kids, like the best marriage in the whole planet is just a dim echo of God's love. The best friendship, the best brother, sister, child relationship is just a dim echo of the love we experience in fellowship with God. So when God tells us, you are my child, you belong to me, what is my only hope in life and death is that I'm not my own but belong body and soul and life and death to God and to my Savior, Jesus Christ. It's an, it is an amazing statement. What it means is that you could lose every relationship in your life and you'd be okay. 
because you belong to God. And all the other relationships are really at best just reflections. Now, praise God, we never have to make that decision because the call to be a Christian is the call to be part of a church and we have relationships baked into that. But there will be times when maybe we need to go where our family is not or we need to give up relationships for the sake of following Christ and the encouragement for us is, yeah, but I'm God's child. That's better. I belong. Well, but here's, here's John's point, though. That was more of an encouragement for you. But John's point here is saying, look, you're God's children now. It's not just a future reality. You are his children now, which means you bear his name, you bear his character and traits. And so to live contrary to God's character is, is to contradict your own identity. Think of it this way. Every kid reflects their parents in various ways, reflect them physically, kind of like, you know, superficial ways. Everyone, when they see my youngest James, has got big red curly hair, and they were like, where did that come from? So, well, it came from my mom and my dad. He looks like his family. All my kids, they look like their family. We reflect our parents and our family in various ways. We reflect our parents by nature, right? If you have two Olympians and they have a baby, there's a very good chance that baby's going to be athletic. He's going to reflect the nature of his parents, and of course, we reflect the nurture we experience, the uh, home life we grew up in, what our parents cared about, how they acted, Sometimes, frustratingly, we look a little bit too much like our parents. So when someone says, he's just like his dad, or she's just like her mom, it's like, is this a compliment? Because we reflect our parents in both the good and the bad. Now, here's the thing, though. If God is your father, it means you're a new, you're a new creation, you, you're a redeemed self, it means you reflect him. But because God is good and light, no darkness in him, Whatever things we inherit from him, whatever traits we inherit from, whatever we reflect him, it is only good. We don't even inherit neutral things from God. He's made you new. He's made you his child. You reflect your father. So that means that your deepest identity is the ways that you reflect your father. Obviously, we live on this side of the the new heavens, the new earth, and so we still sin. And this is what he says in verse 2. He says, you know, what we, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But that is who we really are. When we sin, that's not a reflection of our deepest identity. Before Christ, our deepest identity was that we were bound and enslaved to sin. We were enemies of the cross. We were agents of darkness. But when we become children of God, our deepest identity is that we are God's children and when we sin, we're not acting out of who we truly are. We're not being true to ourselves, to use that terrible phrase. Now, I, I, I just don't want us to miss this, because we all struggle with particular sins. Uh, Satan has our number. He knows where we are weak. And for some of us, it's like, I have, I have this lingering sin. It's, it, it's been for months or years or decades. And, and, and Satan will tempt us to think, I will never change. This is just who I am. And we need someone to sit us down, look us in the eye, and say, brother, sister, this is not you. This is not worthy of who you are. This is not reflective of who you really are. You're God's child. You reflect God himself. And our hope, you know, we're God's children now, and yet again, we still struggle with sin. As John has told us, it is the last hour. Christ's return is imminent. 
and, and the devil is desperate and he's throwing everything he can against us. We struggle against the flesh. Paul describes this so poignantly. He says we groan. He says all creation groans with us because we have God's spirit within us. We've been made new and yet we also struggle and we're just like, I want to be who Christ has made me to be and we groan for the day when we'll actually be that person. And our hope is that one day we will. Again, beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know. We don't hope. We don't think. We know that when he appears, when Christ appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Our hope and our groaning is that Christ is coming back, and when he does, we will be like him. And our conflict with pride and with envy and with lust and with bitterness and with anxiety and loneliness, it'll end. We'll win. And best of yet, we'll see Jesus face to face without this veil that we experience in this life. The battle that we fight against sin, the battle we fight for obedience is one that will be won and that's why John says in verse three, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Sorry, as he is pure. See the love of God. He's made you his children. So spiritual checkup time. How are you doing at seeing the love of our Father, dwelling on it, and eating it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, building your life on it? Are you preaching the gospel to yourself? Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say, again, because, you know, we're so easily deceived. There's times when we've got to take ourselves in hand and preach the gospel. Mike, you are a child of God. What's most true about you is not this X, Y, Z. What's true about you is that you're beloved and you look like the Father. And one day Christ is coming back and your struggle with sin and with whatever else will be put. To- Sometimes we just got to preach that to ourselves. That's the second point. See the love of God, our Father. Third command to obey is don't be deceived. Verses four to 10, there's a lot in here that we're not gonna be able to touch on just for the sake of time, but we're gonna hit what is most central. Verse four to 10, follow along. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. I one time read a study, it was a really interesting study. They took thousands of sermons from churches across, you know, they're all Christian churches, but across the denominational spectrum, and they transcribed all the sermons and they did word searches to try to see if they could find patterns and like, do people preach on certain topics? 
And one of the patterns they found is that the more evangelical a church gets, and I don't mean that in a political sense, I mean that in the classic sense of biblicism, conversionism, Christocentrism, and then uh, activism. Sorry, it's crucicentrism. And activism, these, these, you know. Anyways, the more evangelical a church gets, the more they will talk about sin. Literally, the more the word sin comes up. And based on what I've preached so far, <laughs> seems, to bear, seems to bear out, seems to be true. And we've got to ask, like, do we have some kind of morbid fascination with sin? Isn't life hard enough? Do we have to talk about all the brokenness when we come here on Sunday? Can we have something a little bit more encouraging, a little more inspiring? But according to 1 John, Jesus came for the express purpose to destroy sin. That's why he came. And we're all about Jesus, so we're going to talk about sin. The command that this all hinges on, again, is in verses 7 to 8. Little children, let no one deceive you. It's, again, it's an imperative. It's a command. Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil didn't sin from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, the works of the devil is, is, is a broader net, right? That, that, that covers sinful human governments, human systems. It covers even disease to an extent. It covers violence and warfare. And, but in this text, it's very clear that John is talking specifically about sin. That's what he's talking about. He says, Jesus came for the express purpose to destroy sin. Now, I've been a Christian for 20 years, but I grew up in a Christian home. I'm a pastor's kid and a missionary kid, so it's kind of amazing I'm still following Jesus. But I've heard a lot of gospel presentations, some better than others. Um, and usually in every gospel presentation, there's some reason why people should come to Christ. Come to Christ because he's bought you forgiveness. Come to Christ because he gives you life. Come to Christ because he gives you meaning and purpose. I've yet to hear the invitation, come to Jesus because he wants to destroy your sin. I haven't heard that one yet. And it probably wouldn't be the best thing to lead with, right? Like we want to be winsome and wise and people just wouldn't understand what you're talking about. But it's true. That's part of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he came to destroy our sin. It's kind of a promise here. It says that Jesus came to do this. That was the reason he came. If that's the reason he came, then he's going to do it. It's a promise. He doesn't promise us financial security or health. He doesn't promise us relationships or marriage or children or whatever. But he does promise to destroy sin. And that is really good news for poor sinners like us. Because Jesus, not to be trite, but Jesus is really good at what he does. He's really good at what he does. For those of us who groan under the weight of the flesh, Jesus didn't come to band-aid over our sin. He didn't come to try to hinder it a little bit or try to stall it. He came to eradicate it, annihilate it, destroy it. And again, Jesus is really good at what he does. Let this be an encouragement to you. Again, sometimes Satan, he's the deceiver. It's one of his main ways that he works. And he tries to deceive us into thinking, these sins I've been struggling with, I'll never get past them. I'll never be the kind of patient, kind, faithful, mature person that I want to be, that, that I long to be. And Satan will tell you, well, yeah, it's because of who you are. You'll never, be, you'll never break this pattern. But Jesus came to destroy sin. And if we'll abide in him, if we'll look to him, 
He'll do his work in our lives. And again, Jesus is really good at what he does. But what John is getting at here, again, just to follow the logic, is, is he's, you know, he's, again, he's writing to these false teachers who somehow seem to be arguing that sin isn't a big deal. They were like, we're, you know, we've reached a higher stage of spiritual awareness, and these, these sin things aren't that big of a deal. And, and so John says, no, no, no. Jesus came for the express purpose to destroy sin. And so any person, doesn't matter how compelling they sound, doesn't matter how sincere they are, doesn't matter how effective their ministry is, if they're walking in unrepentant sin, they're not walking with the Lord. It's just black and white. Why? Because Jesus came for the express purpose to destroy sin. Don't be deceived. So in conclusion, beloved of God, kind of an archaic word, but speaks a lot. It gets at what is being said here. See the love of the Father. Beloved of God, abide in Christ. Walk with him and obey his voice. Claim your identity as a child of God, as one who reflects the Father in your truest part of you. And live in hope that you'll one day see Christ face to faith and you will be like him. And make unending, take no prisoners war on the sin that lingers because Christ came to destroy sin and he will do it. Let's pray. Jesus, we, um, we stand in awe of you that you could take people broken in sin and lost in darkness and, and make them children of God. Please help us to abide in your son. Help us to walk with him Help us to obey him. Give us um, faith to see things according to eternity, that we will one day stand in his presence and we will see that he was worthy of anything we could have ever given, of anything that we have given. Help us to see that and to know it by faith. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.